I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, Classical WETA host James Jacobs joins me to talk about Amy Beach, one of America's greatest composers. She was a child prodigy, flourished with concerts in Europe and the United States, and we get a taste of her music, from art song to symphony to opera. Now, James, you and I both lived in Boston, not at the same time, but pretty close. I was there in 2005 to 2009. You were there from like 2010 or 11? Yeah, I moved there just after you left, actually. I was there from 2010 to 2014. Okay, 2010 to 2014. Now, one thing that I didn't know too much about was the composer Amy Beach, who, of course, lived in Boston. She lived at 28 Com Ave, as we would say, or Commonwealth Avenue near Boston Common. I walked by there all the time. I had no idea that's where she lived. Well, that seemed to be the thing with Boston, is that you would walk, every place seemed to be fraught with historical significance. You know, you would think there's, there should have been a plaque on every corner, pretty much, because there, it was just the whole city was one big monument, and uh, and certainly in terms of, of musical history, um, and, uh, and that whole... Um, society that made Amy Beach possible. Right. So Amy Beach, this great American composer, not everyone knows about her, which is kind of a shame. So just to give a kind of a Cliff Notes version of her early life, she was born in uh, September of 1867. She died in December of 1944. She was born into this well-known New England family. Her father, uh, Charles Cheney, was a paper manufacturer and, and importer. Her mother, um, Clary or Clary? How do you say that? Clary? Uh, I think I would go. Clary sounds more Bostonian, I think. But uh. Clary Cheney. <laughs> she was a singer and a pianist. And I guess the, just to get off the bat, I mean, Amy Beach was this incredible composer, the first American woman to succeed as a composer in large scale music, the first woman to have a symphony performed by a major orchestra. Yes. Well, also, before we go on, Think about that for a moment. She was born in 1867 and died in 1944. Just think of the tremendous cultural changes that had happened during her lifetime. Right. And the world was a very different place um, in every way, including musically, uh, when she died than when she was born. And uh, and she was there for, um, for all those cataclysmic changes. And she was a child prodigy. I didn't know all this either. And I think she's a child prodigy just like Mozart, just like Mendelssohn. So the story is that at the age of one, she could sing dozens of songs, always in the right key. When she was two, she was able to improvise alto lines against her mother's soprano melodies. At four, she was playing her own compositions on the piano. And here's a big one, because some of those before, maybe, okay, maybe it wasn't dozens of songs or something, but that's still impressive. The really impressive thing is at age four, able to play hymns, those four-part hymns, to be able to play them right back just by ear after hearing something. That's huge. That's, that's, I don't think, I don't think Mozart could have done that at that age. I mean, that's amazing. Or Mendelssohn. I mean, that, Amy Beach is, yeah, she, that, that's really extraordinary. Because I remember in conservatory, maybe you had the same thing. You at, there When you have a test at some point, I think it's like in your first or second year, you have to transcribe four-part harmony. And it's like yeah. there's eight measures and it's played, they played for you four times. So you can, okay, you transcribe the bass line, tenor, alto, soprano, or whatever. And that's great. But that's eight bars. Amy Beach was doing like a whole hymn after hearing it like once. So just to give, here's the kind of music that we're, that we're talking about with this. Yeah. 
usually it's played on the piano in your exam, um, but the four-part harmony there with a little bit of accompaniment, that's the kind of thing that she was just doing. Now, James, there's a, there's a piano over here. Can you go play that? Of course not. Now, here's another great thing. So she's this child prodigy. And then it comes to, well, they moved to Boston. They were living uh, somewhere else in Massachusetts, but they they moved to Boston in her childhood. And she didn't, people were saying, you know, Amy should go to a conservatory in Europe. That's where, of course, all this music traditionally comes out of. And in the 1800s, there was music in the United States, but not at this tradition, not at this kind of schooling. But she didn't go to Europe. She stayed in the United States, and she studied privately uh, piano with Johann Parabo and Carl Behrman for composition. Now, this is where I think made Amy Beach Amy Beach. She studied with Wilhelm Guericke, uh, who was music director for the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and he taught her basically how to be her own teacher. And that would come in handy because uh, when she was married later on, she basically had to keep teaching herself when yes. she was only 18. So... What does the music of Amy Beach sound like? Do you know what her first published song was? Oh, A Rainy Day? The Rainy Day? Is that the right? Rainy Day. It was The Rainy Day. It's a setting of that poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. She was 12 years old, and she had this published. The day is cold and dark and dreary. It rains and the wind is never weary. The vine still clings to the And it's so um, telling, uh, maybe it's just because I'm an American and grew up, you know, speaking English as my native language, but to hear that kind of, to, to hear English so beautifully set and so respectively set and so poetically set in that idiom um, is, uh, it, I mean, it's thrilling and it's also a little disorienting because we're not used to that. We're not used to English having that level of of deep musical uh, painting uh, that you would get from, say, somebody like Schubert. So she's 12 years old. She's got this published song. She's this brilliant piano player. I mean, she's incredible. She's doing recitals shortly after this. And by the time she's 18 years old, she's on stage with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, you know, playing these huge solos. And that's important because it's also the same orchestra that would play her music as well, do premieres several years later. Now, her childhood, child prodigy, this compositions are starting, she's playing with the BSO, then she gets married. Yes, she gets married to actually her teacher, right? Is that? <laughs> it is somewhat, it's kind of, I couldn't find an exact description of it, but it was someone who was a kind of mentor. He was 24 years older than her. Yeah. And then at 18, they got married. Wow. So, yes. That's... and things changed when she got married. What, yes. what, what changed? Well, all of a sudden, you know, she her, her career was budding, and then all of a sudden, she had to be Mrs. Uh, what was it? Uh, Mrs. H. Mrs. Doctor Beach, right? Something exactly. Like that. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mrs. Doctor Beach, and all of a sudden, she became just you know the a society wife, basically, who did music as this kind of avocation. She kept on writing, she kept on composing, and she was and she did do some performing, but under only very strict uh, conditions. You know, she could you know, present her own compositions. She could, you know, play certain things, but she couldn't, you know, make too much of a show of herself. She had to put her husband in the best light in in societal terms. And right. So it was, she was doing 
at most two concerts a year. All of the proceeds had to go to a charity. But you're right, she was still composing in these years. And she made some great leaps and bounds in, oh, absolutely. in, in composing. I have a couple more of her songs here. Um, some really f- the famous ones coming from uh, the Browning songs and the um, Shakespeare songs. Here is kind of what those sound like. Here is The Years at the Spring uh, from Three Browning Songs. And these are short songs. They're like a couple of minutes at most. And I'm definitely adding these to my playlists, you know, in the middle of anything to, you know, just to listen to. And different moods. From there, the years at the spring to um, Ich sagte nicht, which is, have you heard this song? No. This is, just listen to this. You don't need to know German to know that this is like heart-wrenching love. I mean, Absolutely. it's it's love. And it's interesting because even though she writes it in this European art song style, there, it feels American to me. It feels, it, you can kind of hear, it's a little bit cabaret-ish. It's a little bit like Broadway. You, there, there's, that, there's that sense to it. I'm you glad know? you say that. I, that's how I feel about so much of our music. It has that American quality, that cabaret um Broadway musical yes. style to it. Absolutely. It's definitely art song, but this, I think anyone can be listening to this. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, fe- it really feels like, oh, it's a, one of those old standards, you know, that you would hear, you know, Jeanette McDonald sing or something like that, you know. Right. <laughs> I just love it. Now, you also said she was writing instrumental works too, her symphony. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the Gaelic Symphony, uh, uh, perhaps her, her best known work. Um, was written when she was in her late 20s. And it was the 1890s, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, which was a really a pivotal point in American music uh, in, in many respects. This was the decade when Antonin Dvorak came to uh, direct the National Conservatory in New York. And this was, uh, this was huge in terms of American culture about his... Uh, declaring or suggesting really to uh, American musicians that they draw upon African-American and Native American uh, folk music as their native music, just as in uh, Dvorak's native Bohemia, he drew uh, on uh, Bohemian folk music. And her assertion for, um, uh, in terms of writing the Gaelic Symphony, which she wrote after hearing Dvorak's New World Symphony, is that uh, she should draw on uh, her own heritage, which is Irish. And so we hear in this symphony um, Irish tunes. We also hear her own settings of poetry that were that was evocative of the sea, uh, was dark as the night from the first movement where you hear this um, tumultuous tone painting. Let's listen to a little bit of this. Yes. I uh, think because right, you're right at where this tumultuous you know, idea in, in the music. Because the Gaelic stuff, that comes in like in the second movement, right? right. And this kind of um, variations. Here is part of the first movement. 
so much to unpack here. One is for someone who was not really allowed to engage, who didn't play an orchestral instrument and who only performed her, well, mastery, if I can use that word, <laughs> of, uh, was of orchestration is incredible. It's completely uh, natural to her. I mean, it sounds it sounds like someone who really, really knows what they're doing. And of course, she did know what she was doing. But that is just uh, astonishing that someone uh, that who was not given access, uh, as you know, a lot of the composers who, you know, when they go to the conservatory, conduct orchestras and that sort of thing and grew up with that. Uh, and Amy Beach didn't have that. And yet her, uh, her orchestration is 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 perfect it's, it's it's beautiful not only was she the first woman to be doing this stuff in the united states she was if we didn't already say the first fully educated united states composer and you hear that in the music even especially in the songs which i love her just her ability to go from songs to orchestral music you hear a kind of singing quality but still a very american style here in the 1890s before a lot of stuff that we think of the American uh, sound from like Copeland um, before any of that was happening. Yes, it's true. She was already establishing a kind of um, American symphonic vernacular, if you will. It's uh, it's it already sounds you would have to say, oh, yeah, that's American. The second movement, that's when the Gaelic um, themes start coming in. I just love the opening of this movement. Is this Irish? It is, but what's... Because what when I, I hear that, that opening call, I think the green hills. I, yeah. can hear, I can hear these kind of green hills. And what I love about it is that, it's, is that it is Irish, but it's not kitschy. It really speaks of, of the soul behind these tunes and not just, you know, lucky charms. You know, it's, 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 it's really, it, it, feels, it, it, it feels deep and beautiful and passionate and and authentic. Yes, that's the word. In 1910, now Dr. Beach, her husband, uh, dies. He passes away in 1910. So in 1911, she finally goes to Europe. She goes to Europe, but she spends a whole year before she does anything, from what I understand. She goes there for a year of rest and relaxation. And then the following year, the fall of 1912, she starts giving recitals of her um, solo piano music, her chamber music, her songs. Orchestras are loving her symphony. They're calling her the uh, virtuoso pianist and, you know, the leading American composer. She gets famous in Europe. Yeah. And with that, she's there for, she was there for several years. Oh, yeah. And just, I assume, of course, she's mourning the loss of her husband, but she's also into this whole new life of performing again because she loved performing piano, and she yes. very much missed that um, for almost three decades. Yeah, and she finally gets to do it. And she, I, I, and this, again, is one of the uh, strange paradoxes that she's become uh, relatively little known. Um, and we say, oh, well, that's the fate of the women composer. But actually, she was really successful during her own lifetime. And it's only after that that somehow everything got complicated. But she was she was recognized. She was recognized for and she was successful and she made money and she and she got performed by the major orchestras. And um, 
uh, you know, as one of the great living. So, I mean, and it's not like she didn't have obstacles. Obviously, she had to endure that rather oppressive marriage for 25 years. But um, but she she lived the dream, actually. She did. She bought a house because of one song she wrote. Yes. She bought a house. But so she was in Europe for several years until the start of World War One, And then she moved back to the United States, obviously. And when she came back to the U.S., she already had 30 concerts lined up. Yeah. She, I mean, she was doing great, as you were saying. She moved to New York. She was summering here, riding, and the winter's going somewhere else. Um, in 1926, she was the co-founder and president of the Association of American Women Composers. Also, we should give a little bit of props to Boston. I mean, I know Boston gets a bad rap for being, you know, conservative in some ways and, you know, whatever, oppressive. But the Boston Symphony has always, from the very beginning, championed new works and uh, championed women composers. Uh, the first the first time a woman conducted um, a, a symphony in the United States was Nadia Boulanger conducting the Four Requiem with the Boston Symphony. And, uh, it, and so they, in their own way, um, you know, uh, championed uh, women and, uh, and, and new music. So They're definitely one of my <laughs> favorite American orchestras. Uh, a few years after this, she writes her opera, a chamber opera, right? Yes, it's a chamber opera, opera called Cabildo, and um, it's uh, it's it's only chamber in the sense that the orchestra is just piano, violin, and cello, and you get the feeling that the only she only did that because she wanted to get it performed, and if she had the opportunity, she would have later orchestrated it because you can hear in it all these uh, uh, t- all these orchestral textures that remind you of Richard Strauss or Puccini, and. Um, I guess you could say the tragedy of Cabildo. I mean, Cabildo isn't in itself such a great opera, but the sad thing about it is that had it been performed during her lifetime, she would have then had the opportunity to write more operas that would have actually been great. And um, and the only thing that makes this a little bit less than great is really the libretto. And it's and it's not it's um, the libretto being like the words in the story, right? Right, the the play. And what's and what's amazing about this opera is that, well, first of all, it's a real opera. It's, I mean, it draws upon the dramatic language of Wagner and Verdi and Puccini and Strauss, but it's still, it's, it's beach too. It's, 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 it's got, it's, it has her own voice and it has a voice that's very much of her time. And, and it's, um, this was, it was written five years after the first, what, I, most people would consider the first truly great American uh, musical theater piece, which was Showboat, uh, which was the first um, Broadway show to tackle social justice issues and to have a real uh, to show what what American music drama could could be. And so I think this is really a sort of reaction to Showboat, just as the Gaelic Symphony was a reaction to Dvorak. It's it. And it showed what Amy Beach was capable of. I mean, she could have become one of the great Broadway composers. <laughs> and it, well, this, listening to this, it sounds like it sounds very musical, uh, very Broadway-esque in some in some places and very opera-esque in others. I love there's like a one minute introduction and then this this opening kind of setting of the scene. Ladies and gentlemen, now you are standing in the courtyard of the co- 
Cabildo. Cabildo. The Spanish governor's palace, later the famous prison, hence the name. And it's Cabildo. such a small orchestra. Just I mean, it's a chamber. It's a little chamber group. Yeah. And you can hear how there is much more to this. But it was written in 1932, and I, I assume with the depression, and then with the war, and then she died in 1944. It was never played in her lifetime. It was first premiered in 1947, right. and then it was played again in 2007 and 2009 in Houston and New Orleans. And I've listened to more of it. It sounds, I want to hear this. I want to see this. It sounds like a lot of fun. But oh, then yeah. there's more. That sounds very Broadway. Oh yeah! Oh, absolutely! It's it definitely you definitely get the feeling, and that that it, this could have been, yeah. I mean, this could have been. I mean, not that she wasn't successful already, but I could you could easily hear this. I mean, uh, this was remember this was the same decade that brought us Porgy and Bess, uh, you know, and shortly after, uh, and and really the flowering of the the first great uh, Broadway musicals, and this seems. Um, well, certainly, at least as good as any of those. I mean, in terms of the mastery, the music, the uh, and she drew upon uh, folk materials. It, it took place. It takes place in New Orleans, and so she actually used uh, several Creole songs in 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 the score. And going from that kind of well, American Broadway esque, she goes to it sounds more opera. This duet towards the end, "Love yes. Is a Jasmine Vine." Is it wrong to think like Puccini? No, not at it all. It sounds like a it sounds like a Puc- a Puccini work, but they're having a rehearsal where it's just piano. <laughs> right, exactly. There's so much. There is so much more behind that. No, and, it, it sounds like, but it doesn't sound like an imitation of Puccini. It just sounds like somebody working in the same vein, you know, alongside equal um, talent. And uh, no, it's it's it, it's thrilling and um, and it's moving and it's uh, and it's lyrical and it's passionate and it fits the words, the drama and. Um, and it's and it's not cloying. <laughs> it, it's it's it's. I mean, it's it's stunning, especially and again, especially considering she had. I mean, writing songs with piano, like what we heard earlier, is very different from writing opera. And so she had never really done, gone there. And she had this innate, in you know, dramatic instinct that you that you hear throughout this opera. One thing that I love, I don't want to leave this subject of Amy Beach without this, because I heard this is one of the first things I've heard of Amy Beach, um, and I'm I'm so in love with it. In fact, I'm playing this now, and I hope to have it on a concert or on a recording at least. It's this Bersus that she wrote for originally violin and piano, but here is one for that's played on cello. This is absolutely beautiful. I'm in love with it. And again, it sounds American somehow. And um and and 
though the only thing I would say is that yeah, it's beautiful, but really, don't you think it really needs to be performed on tuba? That's why I'm playing it. That's exact. I mean, so much works on tuba, and it's like you know we're the kind of the thieves of you know because we're the newest instrument. And there's not much written right. before you know the last sixty years. So I'm going to play this. I recommend if there's so many things here to add to your playlist. The Bersus, uh, some of her songs, the Shakespeare songs, the Browning songs. So that's Amy Beach. Do you have anything else to add about? Um, just a couple of other. Uh, I would also, um, if you can seek out the the violin sonata, uh, is a is a favorite of mine. It's a beautiful work, and some of her later uh, piano pieces. But uh, I would I would just say that Amy Beach is she's a major American composer, and um, her contribution and what she had to say, especially considering uh, that she spent so much of her life in isolation, is. Uh, it's beautiful, it's engaging, it's profound, and and there's also a sense of fun and lyricism about it. It's 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 very inviting and engaging. That's exactly it. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on Amy Beach, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any comments or ideas, you can send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA. ¶¶